Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In our last episode, we heard from Callum Chase about the potential of artificial intelligence to transform human society for good and evil. This week, we hear from a historian who has chronicled the birth of Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley has been able to do what it has been able to do because the best and brightest people in the world have wanted to be here. If we don't have immigrants to the valley, there is no Silicon Valley. That was Leslie Berlin, project historian for the Silicon Valley Archives at Stanford University. She spoke to the FT's Hannah Kuschler about her new book, The Troublemakers, Silicon Valley's Coming of Age, in which she chronicles the development of the tech hub from the late 1960s to the early 1980s. Thank you, Leslie, so much for joining me. And what I really wanted to start with was, you know, why did you choose this generation? Well, I had written a book about sort of the most prominent member of the previous generation, who was a man named Robert Noyce, who co-founded Intel, co-invented the microchip, and was an important mentor to Steve Jobs. And thinking about what should I do next, I made a timeline, and I put little dots on the timeline for any significant event or company formation, this sort of thing. And I was stunned to see this cluster between... 1968, actually, and 1976, where there were dots for the founding of Apple and Intel and Genentech and Atari and the venture capital firm Sequoia Capital and Kleiner Perkins Caulfield and Byers. You know, the first transmission from the ARPANET that eventually morphed into the Internet. You had the birth of very significant lobbying organizations that were trying to petition the federal government and the state government for attention to tech. And I thought, well, I have to write about this time where there was this incredible cluster of activity. And what I really like about this time is the previous generation was really all about chips, uh, microchips. And what, what happens here is watching an obscure region that was basically focused on very technical sales from one gearhead to another gearhead, explode into the world of consumer electronics and biotechnology, video games, venture capital. It's, it's just amazing to watch. And so how do you think that that generation of entrepreneurs and investors compares to the generations we see today? It's interesting. I think of, in a lot of ways, there's similarities. I think the innovative sort of push limits kind of attitude is pervasive uh, throughout both generations. I think a very significant difference is that now coming to Silicon Valley to start a tech company is a very hot thing to do. It's a popular, mainstream, cool thing to do. Back then, it was not the case at all. You really had the outsiders and the outliers who were trying to do what today has become so mainstream. And I think that it therefore attracted a type of person who was even more comfortable doing work kind of on the fringes of what was understood to be rational behavior at the time. And so it made for a culture that was very out of the box in its thinking. And then 
at the same time that they're sort of primed this way culturally, they have the microprocessor drop into their laps, like this incredibly important technology that's really at the basis of everything that we're doing today. It was a very powerful combination. And do you think that they were less motivated by money than people are here today? You know, I can't speak to what people today are motivated by. I mean, certainly people today know that you can make a lot of money in tech, which was not the case then. I mean, it was it was just a motivation for doing something that people didn't think could be done any other way. The number of things that people came up with, whether you're looking at the personal computer, you're looking at video games, you are dealing with people who wished they had something and they couldn't come up with any way to obtain it rather than building it themselves. That was the motivation, to get something cool for themselves. And often there was also an idea that if these technologies could get out to the broader public, they would basically bring power to the people. And so the power to the people is a really interesting idea because, you know, a lot of tech companies sort of unofficially say that they're going to save the world. How do you think that this generation formed the culture of today? I think that it's a combination of a few things, the culture today. One is, although people often now like to think that Silicon Valley started in about the year 2000, the fact is that the culture that we see today is layered on top of generation after generation that came before. So this sort of pioneering outlier spirit is actually a remnant from the past. It's really been folded in with an incredible influx of people from around the world. At this point, two-thirds of the people working science and technology jobs in Silicon Valley, young people, I mean, between the ages of 25 and 44, two-thirds of them were born outside of the United States. And so this area that at one point really was just strictly agricultural, fairly homogenous in its makeup, very quickly became the center of sort of a global exchange of ideas. And of course, that's had a huge impact as well. And then the fortunes that have been made here have absolutely impacted the culture in so many ways, including the gap between rich and poor that we see now, or even rich and middle class. I mean, even really small things that you pick out in your book you know, it made me think that came all the way back then. So at Xerox Park, you talk about beanbags and all hands meetings, you know, both of which are kind of almost tech cliches today. And people do think that they came up in the last 10 years. There was a principle of trying to hire people that increased the average IQ, which is something that Google used to say all the time. We don't hire people that we don't think are smarter than us. Right. And I think that something that's important to understand is that Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. These decisions were made back then not with an eye to looking 
innovative or like a fun place to work. A lot of these offices were populated by people straight out of graduate school. They didn't want to wear nice clothes. They didn't want to have to work set hours. And the people at the companies who were hiring them knew that the alternative was that they would go to an academic institution where they really didn't have to do anything they didn't want to once they got tenure. So I think that's something that is underappreciated in Silicon Valley is how important the academic roots were as well. I mean, it was just this combination of those kinds of academic cultural roots mixed with the hippie countercultural roots mixed with tech geek uh, that really kind of got things going here in a way that's recognizable. And then now we have the huge influx of both immigrants and also money that have further complicated the mix. Yeah, I thought you did a really good job of showing the story of the Stanford Office of uh, Technology Licensing, which was, you know, how Stanford became so good at taking things that academics were working on and actually making them into companies. Yeah, that was one of the surprising and exciting stories for me to discover that before 1970, in the 13 years before 1970, Stanford had made combining all of the inventions, all the intellectual property of their faculty, staff, and students, $3,000 in 13 years. And now that number is $2 billion. And that is due to the birth of this Office of Technology Licensing. And what to me was so exciting was how this Office of Technology Licensing, also the man who ran it was a man named Niels Ramers, how Niels was also the first person to see the possibility of great fortunes and great breakthroughs in recombinant DNA and what we today would call biotech. And so those two stories just blended together so nicely how Stanford became this sort of center of intellectual entrepreneurship, academic entrepreneurship, and the birth of the biotech industry in Silicon Valley. The other thing you were just mentioning was the influence of the hippie culture. And I also thought it was interesting how you drew out how anti the war in Vietnam so many people were and how even though a lot of the industry around here had started as defense focused, that maybe, I mean, I don't know if you believe this, that the war in Vietnam accelerated the move to the private sector for some of these people. A hundred percent. That absolutely happened, particularly because what we're seeing at this time are, among other things, experts in graphic displays. And this was typically an area that had a great deal of attention paid by the defense industry for simulators and other purposes. And you had this generation coming out of school who absolutely did not in any way want to do any work associated with the war. And that really opened a space particularly for Atari, interestingly, and also for Xerox Park and later Apple. And you also devote a fair amount of space to what it was like to be a woman in Silicon Valley at the time. I mean, how did you choose the women that you focused on? Well, my criteria for choosing anyone for the book was threefold. They had to be a very interesting story. This stuff is complicated and people don't want to read a book that isn't gripping. So the story had to be interesting. The person in my mind, I wanted that person to be relatively unknown, 
we've read stories of the same entrepreneurs and the same inventors in Silicon Valley again and again. And it's really my belief that innovation is a team sport. And when you have one person who is the focus of attention, very often that person deserves the attention. And at the same time, they wouldn't be where they are without people who are just outside of the spotlight. So I wanted to tell this story about more than one person, which is why it's about seven people, and also people who were not that well known. My third criteria was that they needed to do something important. So the two women who I talk about in this book, one is Sandy Kurtzig, who, as you mentioned at the top, is the first woman to bring a tech company public. She had a software company called Ask. And to me, my primary interest in Sandy was that she had a software company. This was at a time when Silicon Valley was all about hardware. The Silicon Valley was building in the valley chips and computers and advanced telephone systems and disk drives and this sort of thing. And software was such an anomaly that even Larry Ellison, who at this point was trying to start Oracle, tells the story of going to venture capitalist offices and not only being laughed out of the room, but having his bag checked by the secretaries as he left to make sure that he hadn't stolen a, you know, a business week on his way out. So Sandy was interesting to me because she was someone who was a double outsider. She was working in software and she was a woman. And in her case, this meant that when she told people she was running a software company, they thought she was selling lingerie. I wanted to tell Sandy's story because it's important to understand how Silicon Valley became what it is today, which is the majority of investments coming in software. And most of the companies that people think about when they think about Silicon Valley, Facebook and Google are great examples, are software companies. And the other woman I write about is a woman named Fawn Alvarez. And Fawn is a beautiful sort of embodiment of how the valley changed just during this short period of time. So when the book opens, she is 12 years old picking fruit in the orchards in the bucolic town of Cupertino, California. And she goes on to work on the manufacturing line doing work to build products. It was basically a, a factory. And uh, this is something that no one knows about Silicon Valley. There, there used to be factories here. They went by the name Fabs, fabrication facilities, but that's what they were. And they were the site of very well-paying, middle-class jobs for people who did not have college educations. Fawn herself didn't have a college education. And then she goes on to become effectively the chief of staff for the head of IBM Rome. And her story... Again, this is someone who's a double outsider in that, yes, of course, she's a woman, although on the manufacturing line, they were all women. But then trying to figure out how do you move into a white collar job from the manufacturing line, that was something she had to sort of invent for herself. Yeah, she said she wants any job as long as there's a desk, right? So the other thing that I thought was interesting when you were talking about women in this period is you know, there's a lot of discussion today about whether we're missing opportunities for the kind of products that tech could develop because there aren't enough women in tech sort of showing the right ideas. And I thought it was interesting you talked about how men were steering away from computers when they were first demoed because they saw it as women's work and they couldn't type or anything. And that was like almost a missed opportunity or certainly it seemed like maybe it slowed things down. Absolutely. That was 
so surprising to me uh, to discover that it was seen as clerical behavior to type. And clerical, of course, translated to female. And it's not by accident, I think, that the software that made the personal computer really happen was not word processing software, but spreadsheet software. Because for a man to use word processing software would require him to act like a woman and type for a document in the end that didn't really look much different. But to use a spreadsheet, that required keying in numbers, which men had been doing for a long time, with a huge difference in output uh, because you could change one number and all the numbers in your spreadsheet would change. So we don't really think of software as necessarily gendered, but from the beginning, it was existing in a world that was gendered and therefore by implication it was as well. Yeah, it's fascinating. The other thing that I was really interested in is you mentioned some sort of counterfactuals in the book. For example, you know, Xerox and AT&T both almost acquired the ARPANET, which was like the predecessor to the internet. And I just wanted to briefly read from your book because I found these lines fascinating. You say, what would have happened if Xerox or AT&T had bought the ARPANET in the 1970s? The network almost certainly would have been much less independent and freewheeling than it and the internet that followed in its wake later proved to be. A corporate owner would likely have exerted more control over who could join and might also have adopted a more rigid definition of acceptable behaviour. So I find this fascinating because I feel like we're still having this debate, right? You know, the internet could be more controlled, it could be smaller or less useful if it was just developed by one company in a less haphazard way. But it also might have been a nicer place to inhabit without these problems that we see at the moment of disinformation, of trolls, of terrorists online. What do you think would have happened? Well, I think it's a very interesting question and you're pointing to exactly the tension, which is if it were not the freewheeling universe that it is today, for now, well, who would be the gatekeepers? And that would determine everything about what the internet would be or is now. And I, I don't know. I mean, I'm afraid that history has shown again and again that almost regardless of who's in charge, bad behaviors happen. So I guess if someone said to me, go back to this time and decide yes or no, would it be better? I am glad that the internet developed the way that it did. We need to figure out how to put some guardrails up right now, I think. But to have had them up too early would have just been too confining. Yeah, no, it's interesting you point to the fact that this is, you know, still an existing problem and debate about whether we should have walled gardens on the internet and, and what rules and guidelines people should be following on social networks. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is this is something that people bring up all the time is it's new for the history of the Valley, which is that for, for literally decades, people have been saying, oh, Silicon Valley is going to die. You know, the oil shocks in the 70s are going to kill it or Japanese competition in the 80s or Chinese or Indian competition or Y2K or the dot-com bust. These are all going to kill Silicon Valley. But this is the first time that I've heard people saying, hmm, I wonder if we kind of want to kill Silicon Valley. Is Silicon Valley the bad guy? This is a new development. And one of the big questions that people raise around it is this question of fake news. 
And I don't know what the solution is, but I think that people who are claiming that we need to let one of these private companies act as the ultimate arbiter of truth are not thinking it all the way through. And it's not something I think that the broader public has really put our heads together on, nor is it an easy problem to solve. And of course, lots of other places in the world have, have wanted to maybe not kill Silicon Valley, but certainly steal a good share of its lunch. You know, there's so much capital concentrated here and there's so much talent concentrated here. And everyone, it seems, wants a Silicon Roundabout or a Silicon Fen or a Silicon Beach. Do you think that any of them ever stand a chance? I, well, I think they exist. I mean, I think they are out there right now. I mean, it would be such a terrible oversimplification for people to think that innovation in the world is really most concentrated in Silicon Valley. It's so diffuse at this point and dispersed, and Silicon Valley wouldn't exist without all of these other tech regions that are here. I mean, to me, the interesting question is why is Silicon Valley still so important, given that the technologies that in some sense have come out of this place should, by all rights, have sort of obviated the importance of place. And what I just keep coming back to are, one, that this ecosystem has been in place for so long that it's really very difficult to reconstruct, particularly because it came up at a certain time and certain place through a set of historical circumstances that are just not reproducible. And the second thing that I would point to is that serendipity really matters. And people refresh their ideas and come up with new ones and meet the people who would be best suited for what they want to do, often by accident or coincidence. So I live in Palo Alto and my kids went to the public elementary school. And I know a number of companies that started because there were parents of kids in the same class at this school who at a school play or at some sort of production, a game, ended up talking and realizing, wait, you're thinking along the same lines I am. And this has been Silicon Valley's great strength for a long time. And now I think the question that people are very rightfully asking is, okay, but how do we grow that network out because it's a very small group of people who have their kids enrolled in the public elementary school in Palo Alto, California. And we want to be able to tap into so much broader of a community. And that's something that Silicon Valley is really needing to figure out. And of course, one of the ways that you have been able to do it is when people have been able to immigrate to Silicon Valley. What do you think happens if immigration really slows to the valley as it might well do under proposed restrictions? This to me is the biggest threat to Silicon Valley by far. All of the concerns about Silicon Valley's image and fake news and horrible discrimination and all of this, it all pales in comparison to uh, what happens if there are not not immigrants to the valley in the same numbers. Silicon Valley has been able to do what it has been able to do because the best and brightest people in the world have wanted to be here. Best and brightest people in the world in a certain field, let me say, not to insult your listeners. 
if we don't have immigrants to the valley, there is no Silicon Valley. And I think, moreover, that there are so many places in the world that would open their arms to welcome these people. And there's no reason for them not to go if we do not make this a place that people want to be. And I wanted to end by talking about your role at the archives. So does the tech industry really care about history? It seems to always be looking, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ahead. Do you get tech workers coming in and rummaging around to see if they can learn from history? Well, we definitely get tech attorneys <laughs> rummaging around. Is that sort of to bolster their cases about the patents sometimes, and stuff? Right? Yeah, sometimes. I think that if you talk uh, within any company, uh, particularly one that is a consumer company, they will tell you how important their own archives are for inspiring new design in particular. I think that it's always hard to be capturing the history as it happens. I think there's some real potential for that happening now because of all of the electronic media that is being used in companies and elsewhere. And at the same time, that really poses its own challenges because paper is a wonderful medium. As long as you don't burn it, it's going to be readable for a very long time. And this is not the case for electronic media. I mean, just think about even trying to use your old computer or, or read something with new software that it's not easy to do. So this is a big, big challenge. The Library of Congress here in the United States in cooperation with Stanford and several other places is trying to figure out how do we do this? How do we make it so that this history is going to be readable and usable hundreds of years from now? Yeah. And what point do entrepreneurs turn around and say, oh, I really want to save all this stuff. I know I'm making history. It's often not even that they know that they are wanting to make history. I think what very often happens is either an anniversary comes up at a company and someone proposes, oh, let's do an online exhibit or a museum exhibit and there's some sort of call for these materials. And the other thing that often happens is that people inadvertently, especially back then, they, I mean, they had files, you know, they had paper files in drawers and they would often have these at their houses. And so it's very often when people are downsizing or moving for some reason that they start thinking, can I throw this all away? And so my message to anyone listening is, no, don't throw it away. You give it to Stanford. Those are the building blocks of history. I mean, people complain all the time about journalists or historians, you and I are in the same boat, getting it wrong. And the best way to get it right is to have the written materials that were done at the time that these decisions were being made. That's how you trace out history. So please don't throw it away. So you end this book in the early 80s. Is there another generation you want to write about next? I am trying to figure out what to write about next and how to do it. I don't feel like this question of, I'm thinking of it as sort of organizing innovation is one that I've plumbed as far as I want. So I'm taking suggestions, but I haven't figured it out yet. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to reading whatever it is. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you.
We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favourite podcast app. And if you write a review, that will help other people find us too. Thanks for listening. <laughs>